Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. And welcome to Overnight America. One of those uh, chilly nights, but man, do we have a great show planned for you today. So many things going on. Uh, just to name a few, Rich Abino in about 10 minutes. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks and lots to talk to him when it comes to political understanding. There's a lot of things that have already happened in the past. How do they play out and how do they compare to what's going on today? He's so good at setting those up. Next hour, too, we're actually going to be speaking to the senior legal counsel for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. As part of their law center and another law firm, they've come together to jointly file a lawsuit against Twitter after they say their client at the time, a 13 year old, was taken under uh, distress by sex traffickers blackmailed and as 13 year olds are stupid he sent sexually graphic photos and videos of himself to these blackmailers they ended up posting it online and this lawsuit claims twitter refused to take it down and they say this is just a a, a small sample of the child sexual exploitation and the child pornography and thing on these social media networks and it's just it's a disgusting underbelly and they're putting this lawsuit forward it made national news and the two uh, lawyers, two of them, I should say, that are involved in this case are going to come on and talk about what they have discovered and why they're doing what they're doing. So a, a lot more to get to on the show, too. But that's coming up in an hour. And I'm really looking forward to letting them tell the story. And, and it's so disgusting, the things that are on these social media networks. And the sad thing is they will fight you. I mean, they uh, I want you to hear how Twitter handled this material on their website and how they refuse to take it down, and why they refuse to take it down. It is just so disgusting. So that's going to be coming up, too. I wanted to point out a few things real quick to start the show. And I don't want people to forget that there is a very serious problem here in the city of St. Louis when it comes to homicides. In the story, you heard Sean Michael Lyle even bring it up. There's now a reward that's being offered for the double shooting that killed the father and his seven-year-old daughter. In the Central West End, it's just sad. On Sunday night, they're looking for any information possible. A thirty thousand dollar reward is now being offered. Crime Stoppers is helping, and if you don't know about Crime Stoppers, they are just a awesome, awesome organization. 
they're an organization that will keep you anonymous, period. So I know a lot of times people have this problem where, well, if I get involved, I'm going to be the next target. And in the city of St. Louis, we have a lot of targets. It's sad. It's it's terrible. And if you call Crime Stoppers and give them the tip, they will never, ever, ever. In fact, Crime Stoppers has even been taken to court and they refuse to give up their sources because they know that the only way to get these tips from people who are scared are to make sure that they are never identified, period. So if you call Crime Stoppers with the tip, even with this um, uh, reward that's being offered, they will keep it quiet. And if you know anything, please call them if you have any hesitation. It's sad because the dad died on the scene. The daughter was transported to the hospital and later died. And the number that Sean Michael Lyle gave at the top of the hour news there was 17, the number of homicides we've seen so far. The last update I saw from the St. Louis Police Department was 14. So we must not have had that number updated since some of the numbers from Sunday night and into today. So let's say the homicides in the city of St. Louis are now at 17. How does that compare to previous years? Well, in 2018, for the month of January, there was 18. Uh, 2019, there was 18. So the last two years, uh, well, a couple of years, we can see in comparisons, that's where it was. Uh, well, going back just a few, I should say. And even if you go back to January of 2020, the uh, homicide rate was, uh, I think I missed that one up, uh, 15. So we're already surpassed the one from 2020. If you go back to even further, 2016 and 17, each year had 15 homicides at the end of January. 15 and 14, there was 16 homicides, 14 homicides. Um, only 2013 had more than where we are right now at 20 homicides. And going back even 10 years from 2011, probably a year we wish we had, there was only two homicides reported in the month of January there. But let me just say, it's not getting any better. And we came off a year where there were record number of homicides and it continues to grow. And it looks like we continue to break our own records, which is not a record we want to break. We can't stop talking about what a, I mean, absolute dire need the crime in St. Louis needs to be addressed. There, it has to be the number one priority of all the other things that are going on. Um, coronavirus, we're still dealing with that. Um, but homicides, we're looking at people being targeted and killed. And we got a vaccine and it's getting better. And the Metropolitan Task Force says they're optimistic. It's getting better. But when you look at this other thing, the homicides, there's no vaccine for that. Uh, outside of Jesus, I guess, but there is no vaccine. There's no way you can just be injected with something. And all of a sudden, oh, look at that. We've eradicated homicides in St. Louis. This has to be addressed just as aggressively as the coronavirus. And if that's the number one thing that St. Louis could do at, at a time like this, this would be it. I would like to see the mayoral candidates talk more about that being the, the number one thing. Forget about some of these other social issues. Oh, da, da, da. no. Homicides have to be the number one priority. And we have to be reminded that every time we turn around, we can't look at the news and see a seven-year-old girl was shot and killed in the Central West End. How many children were the victims of homicides last year? It's terrible. The, the number is always too high. But it's we're not trending in the right direction. We're still going in the wrong direction. So when we come back, I wanted to talk to Rich Rubino about a few things in the last hour and a half or so. The House has delivered the article of impeachment against Donald Trump to the Senate. They read it off. Um, and I'll talk to Rich about that. I also want to have a discussion about what presidents try to do in the first two years. And they look at their first two years as the most important two years of their administration and what they try to accomplish. And on top of that, 
are there going to be any Republicans that actually vote in favor of these articles of impeachment, uh, vote to convict Donald Trump? And what would that mean for them in the future when they run for election again? So all of these angles and different things for Richard Bino coming up after the break. This is Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. Welcome back. It's Overnight America. I'm your host, Ryan Recker, on Facebook, Ryan Recker Radio. You can also look up our guest, Rich Rabino in his book, American Politics on the Rocks. He's on social media as well. Rich, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Ryan? Good. Well, things have started to calm down a little. That's probably nice, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, we're in such a perpetual campaign and political cycle, though. I don't know if it really calms down that much, but it's a little bit um, certainly not as tense as it was last week. And you know what I heard? It was the, one of the early press conferences where the press secretary for Joe Biden answering questions. They asked, has Joe Biden thought about entering his reelection papers? Because Donald Trump <laughs> in 2016, the day after he was in office, issued yes. his, OK, I'm, I'm going to run for reelection. He put the papers in and they asked if Joe Biden did the same. So that uh, we'll see. Uh, you're right. People wonder immediately on day two. What does the future look like four years down the road? <laughs> well, not only that, but so much of the, so much of the president's job is actually campaigning. So you have a first year in office. There won't be a lot of campaigning. The president will do some fundraisers. But then once you get into 2022, look at how much time Joe Biden and, and Vice President Harris are going to be spending on the campaign trail. She's campaigning for just about every Democrat running for a Senate seat, running for a House seat. Um, it's very important for them. They're going to try to keep the House because right now they only have a 222 to 212 advantage. And in the Senate, it's literally tied at 50-50. So you're essentially going to see an all-out campaign um, offensive in the second year of office. And then once you get to 2023, 2024, and then um, essentially an inordinate amount of time is spent thinking about who the, next, who the candidates are going to be for that presidential race. So it really never stops. It's not like in, in some countries, you know, they only have an election process for a couple months. In America, the election process is perpetual. As soon as one election's over, the next one starts. That's why it's so exhausting, nonstop. <laughs> I don't know why anyone gets into politics anymore. It's a it's a game you can't win. Period. So well, yeah, I but the to... advantage to it, the reason people should get into politics is where young people should, because it's the only job where you can get a job, and then as soon as you get that job, you can spend your time campaigning for another job while being paid for the job you still have. <laughs> well, let's look at uh, President Joe Biden. He's done a lot uh, executive orders and indicated some of the directions his administration would be going, not only here domestically, but foreignly uh, when he's working with other countries. And I'm curious, uh, for his first couple of years in the office, wh what are we getting preview wise and what can we expect from this new president? Yeah, Joe Biden is going, he wants to be, as you can see by the executive orders that he signed so far, he wants to be an activist president. He does not want to be kind of a passive president like some of the presidents in the Gilded Age, presidents like Hayes and Harrison and Cleveland, who are more or less passive. I think Biden wants to be an activist president. I think if you're looking for some sort of parallel in history, I think Lyndon Johnson is probably the closest. Um, in both Biden and Johnson's case, they were not the first choice for the liberal uh, bloodline of their parties. I mean, Johnson had run in 1960. He did not win. Then in 1964, he became president. He was kind of the de facto Democrat, the establishment Democrat. He wasn't the favorite. But then in those first two years in office, he got, got Medicare. Um, he got the he, Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, um, started the War on Poverty, the Great Society, the Rat Extermination Act. And he became an activist president in those first two years. It's interesting with Joe Biden, his biggest problem in the primaries was with the liberal Democratic Party, 
who didn't think he was activist enough. I think he views himself as somebody who's going to probably be more activist in a sense than Barack Obama in terms of liberalizing immigration laws, in terms of the econ- in terms of the economy. He definitely wants to get an economic plan out. He wants to add the public option to uh, to, uh, to he wants to add the public option to the Affordable Care Act. So he's really going to try to be an activist president. I also think that he realizes that there's a very good chance that the Republicans could take hegemony over the um, over the levers of power in both houses of Congress in his second two years of office, making it extremely hard for him to get any major legislation through, unless it's something he has to work with Republicans on. So he wants to get as much as he possibly can passed in these first two years in office, and I think that his legacy will really be marked on what he can do in these first two years in office. Yeah, he's tipped off a few different things, and we know that uh, his last administration with the Obama administration looking at, you know, Obamacare and then some of the speeches, something Joe Biden will do in his speeches. He's very good at slipping in something that is a pretty big deal, but he just nonchalantly throws it in. So he'll give a speech and he'll say, you know, here's a couple of things I want to do, and we're going to do this and do that, and we're going to do Medicare for all, and he'll slip that in for like a half a second. I'm thinking, that's a huge deal. Like, if you're going to really try to push for something like Medicare for all, that's not like a th- two-second little throw into a speech. And it makes me wonder some of the big things he may be trying to do in the first couple of years in office while he has the support of the uh, Congress. Well, yeah, it's interesting, specifically on Medicare for All. That was kind of the big issue. It was really kind of a bugaboo in the uh, primaries because you had folks on the left, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, espousing it. Then you had Vice President, then Senator Harris, kind of flip-flopping on it, saying she was for it, then she was against it. Then you had Biden really being um, one of the major opponents of Medicare for All, saying that he was against the idea that he thought that it took away what they had worked for in terms of the Obamacare plan, which he had worked, which he had really worked to get to get as many Democrats on board, including Ben Nelson of Nebraska and Mary Lane of Louisiana, the two most conservative Democrats had to make deals with them. So that is something. But, you know, he's, that is something he certainly um, campaigned on. But that is, it, it's interesting. It's kind of vintage, I guess, Joe Biden. And I think also it's interesting because um, for Joe Biden, I mean, he needs the Democratic caucus to vote almost in unison on just about every piece of legislation. One thing he wants to do, which will, I mean, this sounds like kind of a Byzantine issue. People say, why does anyone care about the filibuster? It's not something the American people are thinking about. But if he can get the filib- if he can get essentially the nuclear option, meaning that you get, meaning that you liquidate the filibuster for certain votes from you need right now you need a supermajority um, to do you need a supermajority to break off the filibuster, meaning cloture. A, a filibuster is basically just talking a bill to death so it doesn't come to the floor. He wants to get that down specifically to 50. You have Senator Simina from uh, Arizona, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, very skeptical of that. But if you can get that down to 50, then you can get every Democrat to vote for something. Then essentially with Vice President Harris uh, breaking the tie, you can get a lot more legislation passed in the United States Senate. So it's something that's very important, I think, for Joe Biden. It's very important in the Democrats because, remember, when Bill Clinton was president, for example, he got his economic plan through in the House and the Senate. But in the the Senate, Al Gore ended up breaking the tie. You still had six Democrats who voted against it. Joe Biden does not have that liberty to have any Democrats, I mean, no Democrats, and that includes Joe Manchin, probably the most important person in the country right now in many respects, um, to vote for any pieces of legislation because unless he can get Republicans to kind of siphon off a few Republicans, you might get a few here and there, maybe on a trade on a trade treaty, for example, but that's going to be very hard. I think the Republicans are also going to be in unison against most of his major pieces of legislation anyways. 
Yeah, Rich Rubino joining us, American Politics on the Rocks, his book in politi-geek.com. You can find him online. And today, the House handed over the articles of impeachment over to the Senate. Yes. They read it on the Senate floor and are going through some of the procedural things. And I know we talked about this before, but someone texted in the constitutionality of impeaching a now citizen. So there's a couple of different ways to look at this. This is kind of a, a, a new thing, but not always, because you said there is a comparison going back to Clinton and Bush. Uh, you mean in terms of impeachment? In, in terms of impeaching a president who is now out of office. Oh, yes. Well, you go back. So first of all, when you talk about elect, you're talking about, I guess, um, also in terms of impeachment, impeachment also complied to vice presidents, also complied to cabinet members. So I don't know the constitutional permissibility. That's something that legal scholars are arguing vociferously over right now. All I can say is there was a precedent for it, and the precedent was in the Ulysses S. Grant administration back in 1876. William Belknap essentially resigned his office, um, when it, and it appeared that he, they had basically caught him dead to right in terms of accepting uh, bribes. He resigned thinking, well, they're not going to impeach me, but they did impeach him in the House unanimously, basically. Then it went to the Senate, and in terms of the conviction— Almost every Senate uniform senator believed that he was guilty and that if he was still in office, they would have voted to convict him. However, there were enough senators that believed that they, they believed that they did not have the constitutional authority because he was no longer in office, so that they landed up voting voting against conviction on those grounds. That's the only precedent we have, but certainly it's something that constitutional scholars are going to be. Um, you know, arguing about, and certainly there are going to be some, and certainly in the Republican Party, who will say he's already out of office. But in terms of have there been precedent, Ireland Specter, after the Mark Rich incident, where basically Bill Clinton had pardoned Mark Rich, who was somebody who had given money to the Clinton to the Clinton Library, and through his uh, through his wife Denise Rich, and there were some in the Republican Party that thought that that was foul play. So they, so Ireland Specter of Pennsylvania, Republican senator, had suggested at the time that maybe that they do have the constitutional permissibility to actually impeach and convict uh, Bill Clinton, but essentially nothing actually uh, came out of that, and it was kind of dropped. Yeah, and so, and some people, too, wonder. I think there was an indication that even Chief Justice Roberts uh, indicated that he wouldn't preside over this. Right. Uh, so it goes to show you there's still some question if you can or not. And I, I wonder if they could ever even settle that, if they can come out ahead of time and say, well, you can or cannot. I don't know if it's something that you could necessarily challenge, perhaps, mostly because this isn't like a, a, a court case, per se. It's more a political process. And there's all kinds of uh, people are scholars are back and forth on this we really don't know it's it's weird waters but ultimately do you think there would be uh, like what are the odds there's enough republicans that would actually vote to convict i think it was almost a null set right now i would give it about a five percent um remember you need 17 republicans to vote to convict and any republican that's up for re-election in 2022 knows that if they vote to convict that you know they are going to have a very very formidable primary challenge you see this just with the 10 republicans who voted for his impeachment in the House. Every single one of those is going to have a very tough primary challenge. Um, Congressman Rice from South Carolina already has one. Lynn Cheney, the number three person in the United States House of Representatives from Wyoming, she already has a primary challenge. Um, so it'd be very hard to imagine that scenario. Now, that being said, I think that the fact that you have Pat Toomey, who's not running for re-election in 2022, and suggested that the president should have resigned, is probably one who I think that the, that the Democrats could count on as a yes vote, Rob Portman announced today that he's not running for re-election in 2022. That potentially frees him up. Mitt Romney's always been kind of independent of Donald Trump, and then Susan Collins is probably in her political benefit to vote against, um, to vote for a to vote for a conviction. But beyond that, 
Um, it's very hard to oh Ben Sass from Nebraska potentially. Um, it's very hard to see how they get all the way to 17 votes, and it really can be a kamikaze mission for some Republicans. So, by the way, how's your new book coming along? Uh, it's coming along very well. Um, I'm doing mostly the editing process of it right now. It's going to be very long. It's going to be basically um, it's going to be tri- a trivia book, but a lot of it is going to be you know longer form answers, that type of thing. But it's everything from the presidential campaigns, the pre- presidency. Um, United States Congress, it's fascinating. Every time you think you, you know, you look up something, you find something else, you find something that's kind of been, you know, lost to history. And then you say, wow, that probably hasn't, nobody's probably thought about this for 30 years because mm-hmm. it just, it wasn't a necessarily a major story at the time. But then you look at it, just like yesterday, for example, I found that Jerry Brown, when he ran for president in 1980, after he lost the New Hampshire primary, he went to Wisconsin and he had Frank, Frank Ford Coppola produce a documentary for him. And this was his last salvation, was to try to win in Wisconsin. And he, so he was speaking in front of the Wisconsin State Capitol. And at the time, they had problems um, te- with technology. And while, Joe, while uh, Jerry Brown was speaking, behind him, you could see, uh, you could see astronauts in underwear doing somersaults. <laughs> I mean, that's probably lost to history, but at the time, I mean, that really hurt him. And the next day, they called it um, Apocalypse Jerry Brown. Oh, man. You know what? You, there's, let's see, seven and a half billion people on the planet, something like that. There's a lot of people. And at any given time, I'm guessing you're the only one thinking about things like that. <laughs> at any yeah. given time. <laughs> um, yes, it's, so, um, I'm try, I try to bring that stuff, I guess, back to um, those, seven, those seven billion and a half, uh, those seven billion and a half uh, humans. Yeah. Do you mind holding on after the break? I'd sure. love to talk to you more. And Richard Bino joining us, author of American Politics on the Rocks, with a new book coming soon. It'd be great if you looked him up online at polita-geek.com or on social media. You can always do a quick search for Rich Rubino and find him there. We're going to continue with him after the break. Also, a look at your weather on Overnight America KMOX. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there 
there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. News Radio 1120 KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. Rich Rubino, the author of American Politics on the Rocks, polita-geek.com. You can find him online. It's always great when Rich joins us on Mondays. And Rich, again, if people wanted to find you on social media, what are the best places to look for you? Yep, you can just go to Facebook and type in Rich and then the last name Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, or just go to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, P-O-L. You know, I had a, a thought about Congress in the way that they act against certain big whatever. So it could be things that have just gotten too large and Congress is confronted that they have to take it on. Just it's they, they've just gotten too big. And one of the more recent ones is big tech and the power that they have, they, the power they control. Uh, you know, it's just amazing how they're involved in so many different people's lives. There's a huge privacy issue that's associated with it. And I'm curious if anything comes to mind with previous Congresses, different things that they have taken on, that uh, just entities that have gotten too large. Um, well, I mean, I guess you can go back to the days of monopolies and certainly the railroads. I um, mean, go back, I guess, the days of Theodore Roosevelt, and that was all about kind of breaking um breaking up the major industries. I mean, you hear that now today oftentimes when it comes to monopolies, when it comes to the tech companies and certainly Bernie Sanders. Um, he was certainly talking about breaking up the big banks in both of his presidential campaigns, but that's always been um, an issue. And generally speaking, it's the Republican Party that's opposed to the idea of breaking up uh, monopolies, and it's usually was the Democratic Party that supported it. So what happened in so 1908, Theodore Roosevelt, the incumbent president, did not seek re-election he didn't. He supported William Howard Taft um, over his own over the over the incumbent vice president Charles Fairbanks. Taft garnered the nomination, and then in his first two years in office, Taft really did nothing to continue Roosevelt's policy of kind of breaking up monopolies. So Theodore Roosevelt at the time actually first ran for president in the primaries against uh, William Howard Taft, lost. Oh, he actually won in the primaries, but lost at the convention, and then and then essentially broke off and formed the uh, Progressive Party, which really supported the idea of um, breaking up the major industries. Wow. Here's a quick trivia question for you. You may know this one. Oh. Who was the first president to fly in an airplane? The first president to fly in an airplane would have been, uh, let's see, to fly in an airplane, I would say Harding. Close. Well, Theodore Roosevelt back in 1910. We're talking pretty crude airplanes at that point, but it was right here in St. Louis. That's why it's a fun oh, trip. That would have been as, that would have been as a former president. Former? Oh, was he a former at that time? 1910. Yeah, yeah, I guess that would be right. In, he left in 1909. Ah, so this would have been right after. So he makes his way to St. Louis. He said it was one of the biggest thrills of his life. That's kind of a cool thing to think about it, just when if airplanes were new. It's hard to think that airplanes are still a somewhat, in the last hundred years they came around. It's not something that's been around forever. 
Well, that um, was right after. I mean, St. Louis just had just about everything from the World's Fairs, conventions, to everything else. Had it going on. President's oh, flying absolutely. for the first time around here. So a lot of history in, in something like that. And when you start to go back and look and open up the history books, are you someone that likes to go to museums? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly not now, because um, so much of it you can see. On, <laughs> not, even, not only because of COVID, but just so much of it you can see online. But um, it's not something I'll necessarily go out of the way um, to go to. But if I'm in a city or something like that and it's close, I certainly would like to see one. I saw this was trending earlier, and I guess the the president, uh, the, the office of the former president. So Donald Trump opens one up in Florida, and when there's former presidents that are out of office, and we have in this case a one-term president, kind of like Carter. What are some of the things that they do? Because I don't see Donald Trump building houses anytime soon. Like what's, <laughs> what do you think Donald Trump is going to use that office for? No, I've made that analogy before. I don't think he's going to be working for Habitat for Humanities and um, traveling the world and um, monitoring elections and trying to cure diseases. But um, you, Usually they're actually relatively quiet in the first two years after leaving. They spend a lot of time raising money for their libraries and they spend a lot of time as well, um, usually taking vacations. I mean, Brett, Barack Obama went right to a vacation in Hawaii he went right there right after he left office, spent about a month there, um, hanging out with Richard Branson from Virgin Airlines. Um, so a lot of times they do that. They oftentimes write a memoir. Oftentimes they're not actually doing it by themselves. They sometimes have aides. Lyndon Johnson, for example, hired 23-year-old Doris Kearns Goodwin, the current political historian, to come to go back, to go to his ranch, essentially live at his ranch in Texas and help him on his memoirs. Richard Nixon obviously unceremoniously left, but he spent a lot of time uh, working on his working on his memoirs as well. Oftentimes they give speeches. Sometimes they can get five hundred thousand dollars a pop to give essentially a one hour address somewhere. All expenses paid. They give a address for an hour and spend an hour answering questions. And then you know whatever school it is that, that they're speaking at gets a lot of publicity. So it it's been it definitely is they're kind of interdependent on that. So they spend a lot of time doing that. They obviously spend a lot of time golfing. Um, but usually they kind of stay out of the kind of morass of Washington for a long period of time. Um, usually they will come back for a presidential portrait unveiling or something like that. And then once you get once it gets kind of after, you know, two or three years, then they start to kind of get more into the political uh, realm, into the political limelight. And then oftentimes by the by, you know, four years down the road, they're spending a lot of time on the campaign trail for a member of their party who's running to um, who's running who's running for. Uh, the presidency, but they're usually not necessarily um, active, active, and they're usually not spending, you know, as mu- nearly as much time under the Klieg lights as they did when they were in office. Right. And I was thinking about this, too, you, the, the presidential portrait, which is, you know, the unveiling and they choose an artist and they do all of that. And I was thinking about how sometimes they look at former presidents and they name things, schools or parks or things like that. Do you think they're going to name anything after Donald Trump? Because I, this is what I think about, because we, we've had this um, debate here in St. Louis because there was a state representative that wanted to rename a stretch of a highway after the former president. And one of the major concerns is, you know, what's going to happen. It's just going to be vandalized all the time. <laughs> it's going to be like people are going to look at it as a way to I got to go destruct it, kind of like this Hollywood Walk of Fame star that's constantly getting to face. So do, do you think they're going to name anything after it? Um, probably not in a city, probably more like a, a, maybe a rural county in Texas, the places that go, you know, literally 90% for Trump, something like that. Maybe they'll name something. Be hard to envision a scenario where schools named after Donald Trump, the very school, few schools named after presidents generally, um, but that, you know, except maybe James K. Polk from Married with Children, um, where, um, Al Bundy scored six touchdowns. 
Um, but generally oh, speaking, yeah. I would I would say <laughs> I would say um, probably there will be a few. There may be a stretch of highway somewhere named after him, and there probably will be um, things in individual municipalities and places like rural Texas. But it's hard to envision it anywhere in um, a city just because you're right there. It's so privy to vandalism, and you're going to get unwanted attention. You could potentially have remonstrations, people coming to protest. So. Uh, there's very little political uh, upside and probably not very much upside yeah. in terms of commerce for that particular region. But obviously in places where he's very popular, um, there certainly will be some movement. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure everywhere there's going to be somewhere that the people, someone's going to pass, going to want legislation for, you know, a seaway or something to that effect to be named after uh, Donald Trump. Yeah, you see, I grew up in a, a town uh, outside Detroit that was named after a president, and the two high schools were also named after a president. So I grew up in Which Taylor. One? So Taylor is uh, the Zachary city. Zachary Taylor? And Zachary Taylor, yeah. And then the two high schools, it was Truman and Kennedy, both named after oh. presidents. And, wow. um, yeah, but I guess um, I just thought that was normal. I thought, oh, I guess everyone had that, but I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I bet there are very few schools named or very. Oh, the town is named Taylor. Town is named Taylor, and the two high schools are Kennedy and Truman. So there's a lot of presidential naming going on in that city. Wow. Yeah. No. That that's that's interesting. I think there are probably very few cities um, in America named after Zachary Taylor. <laughs> or at all. Well, who knows? I mean, there are, Taylors are pretty old, rough, and ready. Yeah. Well, I don't know much about Taylor. The only thing I know about him, really, and the only reason I know that is because the Historical Society had a little plaque up somewhere, you know, Taylor named after the president. And I was like, oh, I guess I never put two and two together. I just thought it was you know, just something they did. So, yeah, I don't know much um, about the history of the city I grew up in. They don't teach that sort of thing. It's not like Texas. If you grew up in a town in Texas, they're always teaching you Texas history. Oh, uh, absolutely. They have a whole class on it. Yeah, the pride, a lot of pride going into the history of that state. It's not like that anywhere else. It's not like that in Michigan. Uh, they well, don't Zachary, really teach that. You know, interesting about Zachary Taylor, though, in 1850, he was speaking at the, at the um, funeral for Dolly Madison, the former first lady. And in that, he called her, he said, America's first lady. And that's where the term came from. Oh, that's a great fun fact. I like things like that. Yeah. Um, so, so far there's a lot of appointments going on for the Biden administration. Do any of them stand out to you? Any, any significance to the people that he's putting into his uh, office there? Uh, I think, well, it's interestingly that, um, that the uh, new secretary of defense, Mr. Austin um, was recently um, was nominated basically with only two dissents, Senator Hawley being one of them. Um, I think it's interesting because that the Democrats support him because he certainly had ties to Raytheon and the military-industrial complex. Like, I think that's something that potentially someone like Bernie Sanders could have really took a stand on, but they didn't. They essentially, um, like, like as normally happens, they um, essentially usually they allow um, as many cabinet members to pass as possible. That's usually how it works, by the way. Even Democrats and Republicans, even if they object to their policy, unless there's some sort of an ethical stand or some sort of something that's truly ideological, um, they tend to let that person... Um, that per- that person be con- that pe- person be confirmed. I always find it interesting, though, and you see the same thing with Supreme Court justices. They'll always say a lot of people will say use the parlance the person was appointed. Well, the appointments is usually when it's a member of administration, a chief of staff, for example. Actually, some people in the Biden administration that potentially could not get confirmed in the United States Senate, you might appoint to a position in the White House. It's a little bit different, but when people say it for Supreme Court justices, um, and even the you know a lot of people, even constitutional scholars, use that term. I always, it's always kind of interesting because technically you're just sending it up for Senate confirmation. And then, of course, the Senate can either confirm 
or rejected. But, you know, 99% of the folks who get who are sent up there for um, Senate confirmation in the cabinet level are usually um, usually receive um, receive almost unanimous, if not with three or four votes opposed to them, um, and are usually are confirmed um, are confirmed by the United States Senate. And um, and and you know that's essentially that's essentially it. The only interesting thing that I would say is Tony Blinken, who is uh, who's the nominee for Secretary of State. It's interesting how much kind of agreement there is between the center left and the center right on American foreign policy. You saw Lindsey Graham, for example praising him in many respects. I think in the, the, the opposition, it's interesting in foreign policy, the center-left and center-right tend to agree a lot, but then you also have kind of the far-right and the far-left who are very non-interventionist in terms of foreign policy. They sometimes agree as well. So sometimes you have kind of an unholy alliance between someone like Rand Paul, who's very non-interventionist, and Bernie Sanders on the left, or Ro Khanna, for example, the congressman, who are very non-interventionist. So sometimes they agree for different reasons, but they're the ones who tend to say that the U.S. should have a truncated role in the world, whereas, whereas folks like Lindsey Graham and Tony Blinken tend to have a more activist view. Yeah, and I guess one of the big accomplishments that Donald Trump really uh, harked on was his ability to appoint these federal judges. There's many of them that there was a certain turnover, and that was um, that that was something he was really looking at as a, a major accomplishment. Yes. I guess that's something I haven't seen much. So how does that work when it comes to President Biden? Is it just that once in a while a judge retires or you yeah. know steps down and then there's an appointment? There is there much of that on the horizon, or, or is that do we not know? Um, we don't know, obviously, when people are going to retire. You would think, in terms of the most important court, is obviously the Supreme Court. And you would think that Stephen Breyer, who's 80 now, who was appointed by Bill Clinton in 1990, nominated rather by Bill Clinton in 1994, um, he probably, if there was any time to retire, it would be now because he would be obviously a Democratic, a Democrat would nominate his successor. The worst scenario for him would be that he stays another four years, a Republican gets elected in 2024. And then he, there would be a lot of pressure on him to stay in the court as long as possible so that a Republican does not get to uh, nominate his successor. Then you go down that to the D.C. Court of Appeals and other courts. And you're right, there are um, a lot of court, there are a lot of justices that we've never heard of, judges that we've never heard of on the courts of appeals, sometimes as a farm team, if you will, for yeah. somebody who could potentially be a United States Supreme Court nominee. In terms of actually judges being nominated, though, on a, from a policy standpoint, obviously judges have a lot to do with um, with kind of the um, shape of the country and how the Constitution is interpreted. But in terms of when you look back at a president's legacy, it's very rare that you actually say this president appointed, nominated this judge, this president nominated this judge. You know, presidents are usually remembered for two or three things. And whoever they've, whoever their cabinet is, whoever got on the Supreme Court is usually kind of subservient and people kind of forget about it. There are some that maybe are historic. Um, Thurgood Marshall by Lyndon Johnson, the first African-American, uh, Senator Day O'Connor by Ronald Reagan, for example, the first uh, female. But in terms of actual, when you look at a president's legacy, you very rarely look at the judges, even on the Supreme Court, let alone the, um, in the inferior courts. I have one other thing I was going to ask you about, because I heard this on our sister station. Uh, Brian Kilmeade is a uh, Fox News uh, host, and then he has a radio show. But he was ma- he was drawing comparisons to how unpopular Truman was when he left office. Oh yes, his approval rating was dismal. But now today, people look at him; uh, they revere and they say he was a great president. And 
they were wondering, is something like that, is it possible to happen to Donald Trump, where he comes out with one of the lowest approval ratings, some time passes, and they look at some of the things that were accomplishments during his administration, and then the, 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 the opinion of him changes over time. Yeah, Truman's fascinating because, well, in Truman's case, he was literally at 22 percent. No president has ever polled in any poll lower than 22 percent. And in part, though, that was because the Korean War was just America was enveloped in Korea. There were casualties on both sides every day. There didn't look like there was any there didn't look like there was any semblance of troops coming home with a war ending. Truman literally ran in the New Hampshire primary. Um, I guess it was a writer at the time, but he lost to Estes Kefauver in his own party's primary and then said he wasn't going to run for president after that. That's how unpopular he was. There was also corruption in the administration. And then the, the Korea corruption and communism were the three um, things that Eisenhower used against him at that time. Um, there was also the fact that the Chinese had been that the um, mainland China had uh, the Taiwan rather um, in terms of Formosa had been the had been ta- Chinese had been taken over become communism and a lot of folks blamed Truman for that so he was extremely unpopular. It came later in his life, about ten years later, that people started to appreciate what he had done. Certainly in his first term, his second term in office, there were actually a lot of um, a lot of failures where people started to look at that. And now he comes down to about f- president usually a six or seven. On the other side of that, Eisenhower was very popular with the American people when he left office. His job approval was about 61%. But when you look at the polls by historians, he was usually in the bottom half. Now he's looked at about number five or number six. What's different between those two and Donald Trump is that they serve two terms as president. And generally speaking, a president who's a one-term president who loses re-election um, is usually in either the center or the bottom half. Some exception to that, James K. Polk is usually about 10 or 11 he served one term. He did not seek re-election. Um, George H.W. Bush, for example, is usually about 20. Gerald Ford is somewhere about 23, 24. Jimmy Carter is right around there. So usually a one-term president is not in the um, kind of top tier um, of presidents. But it is true that there are some presidents who were very popular during their time. Warren G. Harding was extremely popular, at least his first year in his presidency. Then the Teacott Dome camp scandal after he left office. He became really a um, hindrance for the Republican Party. Now he's looked upon very unfavorably. Um, so that can happen as well. Um, and then also there's also the fact that sometimes presidents are looked upon, certainly in their first two years, very differently than in their second two years. Um, George H.W. Bush, extremely popular after the Gulf War, lands up leaving with a job approval. Um, with it, with it, At least during the election, he only garnered about 38% against Bill Clinton. So you really don't know how history is going to judge a president you know, until perhaps 40, 50 years later when you're actually looking at their policies and you're looking at what the effects the policies had. It's one thing to get legislation through Congress. It's another thing to see, as, to see 10 years, 15 down, years down the road what the kind of unintended consequences, um, Bill Clinton with deregulation, for example, of the banking industry, um, in some in some respects, when he signed the um, repeal of some parts of Glass-Steagall back in 1999, a lot of people at the time view that as a very minor piece of legislation. But then when it comes to 2008, some people blame that for the financial crisis. So you really never know. Yeah, never know. Well, that's why uh, every Monday we get an opportunity to <laughs> look again and reevaluate. So Rich Rubino, American <laughs> Politics on the Rocks, the name of his book, Polita-Geek.com. And you can find him on social media. If you do search for his name, Rich Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O. Thank you again for coming on. It's a great, great time every Monday. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on again, Ryan. And Rich Rubino joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line on Overnight America KMOX. 
This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com on KMOX. Went a little long with Rich Rubino there, but it's funny. Uh, and whenever we have him on, it's amazing because you can ask him something that we weren't prepared for. There's only a few things that we actually prepared to talk about. And when I say prepared, I'll say, hey, I was curious about this. Can we talk about this tonight? And he says, sure. That's our preparation. And then sometimes I'll just be inspired and ask him about things like that. And he will he just can go right off the cuff. It's pretty amazing what he is able to do. So instead of going into something new, I want to mention after the news here and a little past nine o'clock, we're going to have two people on. Uh, Peter Gentala and Lisa Haba are joining us. Uh, both of them are legal counsel for John Doe, uh, John Doe being a minor at the age of 13. Uh, he was blackmailed and was uh, by sex traffickers. And part of the blackmailing was, hey, we want you to send us dirty pictures of yourself. And this 13 year old was uh, sexually taken advantage of in that way. The photos were sent. Uh, you don't make the best decision at that age and not realizing you, you think that's what's going to get you out of trouble. But in reality, that's the thing that actually gets you into more trouble. So these pictures eventually make their way onto social media in a lot of ways, how these pressurings normally work. They ask for more things. And then if you don't do it, then they threaten to put it online or whatever. And uh, this is uh, this is a, something that happens an awful lot when it comes to teens in the modern world. And it's actually pretty disgusting to think of the sexually explicit content that involves minors. I think Facebook has about 96% of those that were reported. Uh, Twitter definitely has a lot too. And we're talking millions of images every year are reported for things like this. Well, in this one case, as you'll hear from the legal counsel for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, uh, Peter Gentala, who joins us uh, after the news, he's going to tell the story of John Doe, what happened to him, and how difficult it was to try to get these images off of Twitter. They reported it. They gave the story. You're talking about you know, sexually explicit photographs of a minor. This needs to go. And Twitter says, actually, no, it doesn't. And how infuri infuriating that is. So we're going to talk to him about that after the break on Overnight America KMOX. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.